Before we get started, I would uh, like to uh, follow up on the letter that we, you may have received uh, in email or uh, some sort of an email notice that, that you could follow to, to read. And that letter was sent to, to the entire church uh, regarding the Supreme Court's decision to allow gay marriage. Now, while it's troubling to some, others are rejoicing, and some might even be wondering if the church has interpreted Scripture correctly and or should rethink this whole matter in some way. If you haven't had a chance to read the letter, we encourage you to do so. Uh, if you're not on our mailing list and would like to receive it, ask a staff member, and uh, we'll be happy to send it to you. As the elders, we do want to be clear that we believe and encourage the church to respond with God's heart to this decision. While we recognize that it was a momentous decision for our country, a ruling by the court can never nullify God's word. We continue to hold unswaveringly to the biblical view that marriage is a bond between one man and one woman. So what should we do? Just exactly what we've been doing all along. Continue to be signposts for Jesus. And we want to live lives that point to Jesus. And we, we also want to love like Jesus has called us to love unconditionally. We are called to follow Jesus and uphold his word no matter the cost. And he is the one we have allegiance to. But there's no need to respond with anger or to judge anyone who chooses to believe otherwise. We are all imperfect people and need to be loved by one another, and gay people need to be loved as well. So, we follow Jesus with all of our hearts. May this hurting world know that this church in Fort Worth is a church that loves because Jesus loved us first. So be strong and courageous in God. Let's show the world that following Jesus is the only way to true freedom. All right. So, um, yeah. So I want to start this morning with uh, Isaiah 61. The theme is more mercy in everyday life, and I think it's an appropriate theme given what I just read and uh, what's been happening. So let's start with uh, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But before we do, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, to show us exactly what you are like. We thank you, Jesus, that you are God's thundering voice in our world, that you come and speak and do and behave exactly as God is as a human being, that you are the word of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can see in you what we need to see of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, says Isaiah, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. 
In order to really capture the meaning of this passage, we've got to just go back in history a little bit. And this is a poem. It's a poem written by the prophet in order to get God's message across to a people that had uh, been suffering, uh, were in captivity at this time. This is the 6th century uh, B.C. And uh, Judea and Israel have been basically wiped off the face of the map. The entire population has been uh, transported as prisoners, as slaves, as uh, deportees. They've lost their families, uh, many of them. Many of them have lost their eyesight because one of the things that uh, Assyrians and Babylonians did was to blind, gouging out the eyes of uh, important prisoners. Uh, many, uh, many of the people, all of these people lost all of their possessions. They walked away in chains from their uh, country. And so when this poem was heard, it was heard by a people who were suffering. They were the poor that the good news was being preached to. They were the brokenhearted that needed to be bound up. They were the captives who desired freedom. And they were the prisoners who had been locked in darkness. And they were a people who needed God's grace, His favor on their lives. That is the background of the passage. So, uh, you know, we may use it in a lot of different ways, but this is the way that it was originally heard by the, the captives in the land of Babylon or in Assyria, wherever they were. And it helps us to get a little bit of background because we can understand then why the next line, which is really the punchline, and it's the sort of the, uh, the pole around which this passage uh, turns, and uh, it is that, that message of vengeance. Now, you've got, you've got to understand that, that Israel and Judea had a deep, keen sense of justice, and it's, it's natural that they had a keen sense of justice because they were a little tiny country. If, if you could imagine the, the area over there, it's called the Fertile Crescent, and here in the north, is Babylon at this screen, and in the south is Egypt in this screen, and these are mighty empires. They ruled in that area, and only uh, 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 only uh, uh, resistance that could be put up to them would be resistance that was fading and fleet very often. So Israel was a little tiny strip of fertile territory wedged between a vast desert. On, in the east and a huge ocean on the west. And so anytime uh, uh, the nations of the north uh, wanted to fight the big empire in the south, uh, guess who got caught in the crossfire? It was Israel. It was Judea. Not only that, it was a very strategic place, and so it was very desired as a place to hold and occupy. So Israel was pushed around. They were kicked around very often. They, they suffered a lot at the hands of, uh, of these empires. And so it's logical that they would have a keen sense of justice. Now, the, you know, people who are in power don't normally have the same kind of 
sense of justice that people who are down at the bottom of the ladder have. It's natural. You know, justice may be an idea to the person in power. It may be a concept out there. But the keen sense of justice and injustice is felt by those who feel oppression. And so their sense of justice becomes intertwined with a sense of vengeance as well. The vengeance is that natural human feeling that desires for things to equal out. You hurt me, so I need to hurt you back to keep things equal. And so this becomes a deep, dominant theme in the prophets. We experience it over and over again in various places. It is an important theme in the Old Testament. I'm not denying it at all. And yet, there are some stories that subvert or seem to subvert this notion of the importance of justice. And I'd like to tell a couple of those stories. In fact, we'll have three stories, and that's the end of the, end of the message today. So the first story is from 1 Kings chapter 17, 8 through 15. And it's a story involving Elijah, Elijah, the prophet. And Elijah was confronting King Ahab in the north and saying, there is going to be a three, a, a, a drought. It's going, the heavens are not going to give any rain for a long time. And uh, that put uh, Elijah at risk. And so he had to flee for his life. He was, uh, he was uh, criticizing the king for uh, bringing in the worship of foreign gods. And so Elijah got away. Uh, there are a lot of things that happen in that story I'm not going to talk about. But eventually God called him way far in the north to a place called Sidon. And Sidon was a pagan city well known for its uh, evil and its deeply entrenched evil. I'm not going to go into all of that, but near Sidon was a uh, small village called Zarephath. And Zarephath was a single mother who had a child, and she was enduring at that time uh, the same uh, drought that had touched this whole area. And Elijah came into the city, into the little town, and saw her picking up sticks. And so he walked up to her, and he asked, Ma'am, would you give me some water, please? And uh, so she started to get him some water, and yeah, sometimes you need it. And he said, by the way, while you're getting that water, would you get me a loaf of bread? I'm really hungry. And she said, well, she had a really sad story to tell. Well, at home, I only have enough, barely enough flour to make a loaf of bread for me and for my son. And I'm picking up these sticks in order to burn, uh, to make a fire and, and cook that bread. Uh, and I, I, I just barely have enough flour and, and oil to make that bread. And, and so that's my sad story. Well, the prophet said, uh, well, it doesn't matter. You go ahead and do all that. 
and then bring part of that bread to me uh, and, and give it to me with that water you're going to give me. <laughs> That's the prophet Elijah. But he said, um, but he said, and when you do that, you'll notice that the flour will never give out and the oil will never run dry until this whole a drought has passed and you're able to eat again. And, and that's exactly what happened. This woman who was, now that we know the story, she was a pagan woman. She was a worshiper of other gods. She's not an Israelite. And so she's outside of that covenant, uh, that promise of God. It's outside of God's people. And he, yet God provided for her in a powerful way, in a miraculous way. And she had everything that she needed to survive with her little child, that, that drought. Now, if I were an, an Israelite uh, during that time in the captivity, hearing, these, hearing the stories, I would want to focus on the stories that were stories of vengeance. And so this story kind of subverts that idea of the, of the uh, vengeance-focused God and a vengeance-focused people. But an Israelite might say, well, yeah, yeah, the story is, I, I can, it's okay. I mean, yeah, God helped that pagan woman, single mother. Okay, we'll put up with that. But the next story is a bit more challenging because it, this story is from 2 Kings chapter 5. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, this is in the 8th century B.C., like the other one, in the 8th century B.C., and uh, Elisha, who is the protege, he kind of inherited the, the place of Elijah as the prophet, God's prophet. Uh, Elisha uh, lived in a time in which Syria, and the nation right above Israel in the north, and the king Hadad uh, was ruling at that time, and he had a general. And that general of his armies uh, had terrorized Israel over and over and over again. In fact, during one of his raids, he had taken captive an Israelite girl, probably slaughtering her family, taking her away from her uh, people, uh, and gave her as a gift to his wife. Well, as it turns out, Naaman became sick with a very bad skin disease. In most Bibles, it's called leprosy. I, I'm not sure that it's Hansen's disease, but it's called, it, in the Bible, often translated that way, although the modern Bibles are updating that and not using that word leprosy because it, it really has a negative connotation and could refer to any number of uh, terrible, disgusting skin diseases. And so with that disgusting skin disease... Uh, he, wanted, he wanted to be healed. He couldn't be healed. There was no way to be healed in Syria. The little girl told her mistress, there is a prophet in Israel that can heal Naaman. And so Naaman did everything he needed to do. He, he uh, did the necessary diplomacy, paid the necessary fees, whatever it was that he would allow him to go down into Israel at his, you know, the enemy uh, general, and he does that. He goes down to Israel, and he talks with Elijah, and Elijah the prophet then tells him, well, if you dip 
yourself seven times in the River Jordan, that muddy River Jordan, you'll be cleansed. And that's exactly what happened. He dipped himself seven times in the River Jordan, and he came out with skin as smooth as a baby's skin. So here we see a story of God's not just provision for a single mother who was a pagan, but the story of God's healing a pagan, but not just a pagan, a pagan enemy combatant. Now that would be more difficult for an Israelite reader or hearer of this story during the exile in the 6th and 5th century. It would be more difficult for the Israelite to hear that because it challenged something deeply basic about the fairness of God toward his people. You see, the, the, the line there at the end of what I read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, that line at the end, and the day of vengeance of our God. For Israel, God, Yahweh, was their God. So his business should be then to protect his people. His business then should be to defend the national borders. His business then should be to keep the other national gods at bay. But here God is acting in a very subversive and different way, something that would be not expected. So let's go to the third story. The third story is a story about Jesus in Luke chapter 4. And I, I want to encourage you to find that passage in your Bible, if you could, because it's going to be uh, very important to look at it and to catch some of the details. So, uh, Jesus comes to his hometown to visit. And when he comes to his hometown to visit, uh, he has already experienced the baptism of John. The Holy Spirit came down on him. He saw the Holy Spirit as a dove. Uh, he heard those wonderful words, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he went out of that place. The Bible says, In the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside, and he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So Jesus was the hometown boy who had made good and was coming back. And imagine all of the expectations that might have been there. Oh, man, he sure has gotten popular out there. I, I wonder how that happened, or... You know, I hope he does something here for us. Man, he's going to really do something. Man, if he makes it big and is able to influence the government, maybe he'll help us get that hospital we've been trying to get, or maybe he'll help us get that building or whatever it is. He's going to be our dude, right? And so Jesus comes in, and as was his custom, he goes to the, the synagogue and he begins uh, uh, worship like everyone else, and he's invited to read uh, the scripture that day, and the, the, the synagogue uh, attendant gave him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And so the, the Bible says that he, Luke says he opened the scroll to this passage. So he found this passage. It wasn't just on the roster that day. He found this passage, and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
and he shut the book. And he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why were they fastened on him? Because they wondered what he was going to say next. You see, they were expecting, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus didn't say that. He built up to the passage. He said everything that was there. He read, and the year of the Lord's favor, and he shut the book. So sometimes what Jesus says and what he doesn't say are equally important. Now, some people might say, well, it was a mistake. Luke forgot to write that part down. Jesus really said it. Um, don't think so. We're going to see why. But there is no problem with the text here at all. Well, then the second response might be, well, it was an accident. You know, Jesus got to the end of that, got to that passage and expected everybody knows what comes next, so why do I need to say it? Is that what happened? Well, let's read what comes next. So, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can Jesus do that? Can Jesus make... Can Jesus edit the prophet that way? And I'm going to say, consider this. Yes, he can. <laughs> because he is the word of God. You see? He is the word of God. God's perfect expression of himself. And the Bible is a pointer to Jesus who is the word of God. As the word of God written, it's a pointer to Jesus who is the word of God. So... If it's a question about who we're going to listen to and what's going to have the priority, who has the priority? Remember in Christ Fellowship, the right answer when you ask a question that's just sort of suspended out there is Jesus. Exactly. Jesus has the priority. So let's go on to the next part. And uh, their initial response is all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Isn't this Joseph's son, though, they said? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, Prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel at Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow, a pagan widow, in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, it's interesting because Jesus pulls something out that's not really even stated in the Bible because it doesn't say that... Uh, uh, that Elijah or God didn't heal, uh, didn't uh, provide for any of the widows. It doesn't say that in, in Israel. It says that in, what, in Jesus. Jesus is 
drawing out an implication here that is not stated explicitly, and he's making it deliberately explicit. So it looks like the omission of the last line of Isaiah 61 and 2 and the day of vengeance of our God is deliberate too. Second story. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Wow. That was a tough sell. I think that was a heavy sermon that day. Now we understand why what happened next happened. Often, you know, people have said to me, why, why did they get so mad at Jesus? It says at the next moment that they got mad at Jesus because Jesus left off their favorite punchline, you see. And not only that, he was confronting their whole religious system that had been based around vengeance. The whole idea that things are going to have to, uh, have to even out, that because the nations had hurt us and taken us captive and all of that, that we were going to get promoted to the first place and it was going to be our time to do some kicking around. It was going to be our turn to be the head and not the tail. It was going to be our turn to be the important ones for a while. But Jesus, you see, didn't come with that kind of a message. One of the things that we see very clearly is that Jesus came with a message of mercy. And his message of mercy definitely challenges the religion of vengeance. To the extent that, and here's a problem, when you have a religion of vengeance, when someone tries to take it away from you, what happens? What's the response? Anger. Wrath. That's why the scripture says they were filled with wrath. They were furious, it says. And so uh, they got up, they drove him out of the town. You can imagine picking up stones and rocks, throwing them at Jesus, drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They wanted to throw him off the cliff. But the text says Jesus passed among them and left them. And that's the sad thing. <laughs> when Jesus comes among people who are focused on vengeance, he will pass among them and leave them. That's the clear message of this passage. We don't want to be that kind of a people, of course. <laughs> you know, we want to be a people that respond to Jesus' message of mercy. We don't want to be that kind of a people because Jesus taught very, very explicitly, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In fact, if you compare Matthew 5.48 with Luke 6.36, which are 
It's two versions of the same sermon. In one version of the sermon, uh, Jesus says, so then be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, you know, a lot of times people get all twisted up in knots about that. I can't be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, that whole context is about loving your enemies. God sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. He takes care of them equally. And so Luke 6.36 says, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. The mercy of God is the perfection of God that He is looking for in us. You see? And so there's, there's, there, there's a lot that we could say here. It's getting close to the end of our time to be here. But, but uh, you know, I, I want us to understand that Jesus, in teaching a lot about mercy, gives us, puts a lot in our lap. In fact, he says, we are able to respond, as we respond in mercy, God responds in mercy to us. And so mercy is one of those things that we get to determine how it comes back to us. So what does mercy look like in everyday life? You know, my life is probably like yours. You know, it's a fairly unexciting landscape. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my mercy probably is not going to show up in grand gestures. And most of the time, mercy reveals itself in fleeting moments. But I, I've been the recipient of mercy. Have you? Have any of you been the recipient of mercy? Yeah? Yeah? So... This happened to Lynette and, and me while we, were, uh, while we were in Argentina about 35 years ago. We were a young couple and brand new baby, about four, four months old, and it was, we were just desperately in need of a, of a vacation, but we didn't have much money. We had about $100 for this vacation. So we figured out that if we cut it really close, we could get a ticket down to the beach which was a, a train trip down to the Atlantic Ocean, and spend a couple of days and come back. And uh, so that's what we did. And we were cutting it very close, uh, and we had a ticket, a return ticket, and uh, unfortunately, as we were coming back to the train station in that beautiful city, uh, we arrived just a hair late. And when we walked in, the train had just left the station. And I wondered, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I walked into the station manager and I said, uh, sir, uh, is there another train coming? He said, yes. Uh, well, will this ticket work? And he said, look, on the back of it, it says, if you arrive after the train is left, you get no refund and you can't use this ticket on another, uh, another trip. So uh, he said, well, the rule is, and this is for people who have foresight. Um, yeah, you can laugh. Um, if you, if you uh, turn the ticket in 24 hours early, you get a full refund. And then there's a smaller refund the closer you get to the, tick, to the time the train departs. So that if you turn it in five minutes before the train departs, you can get a 25% uh, refund. Who does that? I mean, who's thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to go up there and get my 25% refund five minutes before the train? That would be crazy. 
But uh, so I'm trying to figure all this out, foreign language, have a baby. My wife is there, depending on me, her husband, to have, you know, protect her. And, and we didn't even have enough money to make a phone call to our friends in the other city in Buenos Aires and get them to come and get us. We were stuck. And so I went out on the uh, train uh, station landing and I said, honey, what are we going to do? You know, I, I don't know, maybe we'll sell something or hawk something. We had our wedding rings, you know, to add insult to injury. And so I took those off and the train uh, station manager saw that. And as I began heading out the door, he called to me. He said, son, come over here. Brought me over to the office. He walked me inside and he shut the door and he said, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say that you came in five minutes early and that will give you a 25% discount. But you're going to have to go downtown and get that discount and, uh, and that way you can get yourself an, another ticket. And I said, Oh, that's great. But he could tell I was still crestfallen, I didn't have the money. So he, said, he pulled out of his pocket the money that would be necessary and a little bit more for that ticket. And he said, young man, go get yourself a ticket for you and your wife. And so he did that. And I took a bus downtown to get that. And all the way, you know, sometimes you, you wonder why you have those bus rides, why you have that time. That was a time for me to reflect on God's mercy, how God had had mercy on me just like that so many times. And I was just a puddle of tears, I, you know, trying to hold it together, people around me wondering what in the world is happening with this guy. Uh, but, uh, you know, we all need mercy, and so how do we give mercy? Well, you know, it's, it's sometimes a delicate thing. So, for example, if you were on one of the buses, and not very many people ride buses, I've ridden the bus here in Fort Worth a few times, sometimes the bus fills up, and uh, then someone else gets on. And uh, you have to decide whether you're going to give up your seat or not. There's that moment, awkward moment, especially if, the, if a, it's a, there's a pregnant woman or an elderly person. So mercy would be giving the seat up in a way that makes it look like you were going to stand up anyway. You were about to get off so that the person doesn't feel that, oh, you gave it up for me. Or mercy does not let out that sigh, you know the one, the wordless disapproval toward the person in the checkout line ahead of you whose card didn't swipe or who couldn't find her coupons or whose toddler is having a meltdown. Mercy offers quiet sympathy and does not convey with her body language that this holdup is ruining her whole day. Sometimes mercy chooses not to send back the food that isn't just right simply because the waitress looks overwhelmed. When mercy has been wronged, the offended one does not make it difficult for the offender to apologize or ask forgiveness. In fact, mercy does not wait for the other person's actions, but forgives so quickly that the person needing forgiveness is freer to ask for it. Likewise, at work or at home or in the classroom, mercy creates an atmosphere in which the person feels safe enough to admit his or her mistake and to ask a question. And if mercy must correct someone, it pains her to do it. And she does so gently 
without that well-known vindictive relish. So mercy makes a habit of giving others the benefit of the doubt. Mercy is not in the habit of sending deadly glares at people who are annoying. Mercy gives charitably, knowing that eventually someone will take advantage of this generosity. And mercy welcomes you fully aware that this fact may disrupt your own plans. You see, it's mercy in everyday life. And that's the kind of mercy from what I read about Jesus that we're being called to, that mercy that adds up to a lot. I've experienced that kind of mercy, you've experienced that kind of mercy, and you've experienced the other side of it too, I'm sure. So Jesus today is calling us to that kind of mercy. And I guess what I want to do in this is, uh, is just go back to Isaiah 61, but I'll take it here out of Luke's uh, revised version of it, Jesus' edited version of it, which I just love. You know, sometimes we need Jesus to edit our theology, right? Or edit the way we read the Bible. Or deconstruct it and reconstruct it and give it to us back again formed like Jesus' heart. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me. Who needs good news this morning? Who needs good news? Then stand up. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Who needs freedom this morning? Stand up. Who needs healing this morning? Stand up. Who needs freedom from oppression and from bondage? Stand up. And who needs grace this morning? Stand up. Well, I need those things. And you need those things. We all need them. So when we read the Bible story, who do we identify with? We identify with Elijah and Elisha, the people that go around giving provision and healing. Or do we identify with the single mom of Zarephath, the widow. Do we identify with Naaman? Is that our story? When we read the Bible, are, do we, are we like those uh, that uh, were looking at the picture with the voyage of the Don Treader? You remember the story. And they were looking at that picture, and that picture began to move, and they fell into it. We need to fall into the Bible and identify with the people that Jesus identifies with. The scripture says, it is appointed for the human beings once to die, and then comes judgment. Come on up, uh, those of you who are on the uh, ministry team. It's appointed to a person once to die, and then comes the judgment. But the scripture teaches us that we get to determine how much mercy we will receive in the judgment. We get to do that by being merciful. Jesus says, whichever uh, bucket you use of mercy, you, it will be measured to you. It's really kind of simple. This is one of the things we get to work out in, a, in advance. So you know, Jesus is calling us to be like him and to be merciful in, in lots of ways, big and small ways, so that our bucket, we all need to get a bigger bucket of mercy. We all need God to stretch our buckets, to give us a bigger bucket so that 
you know, we can receive that abundant mercy. So whatever your need is, and you need prayer this morning, uh, just as I do, you know, I, I encourage you to come down here, receive prayer, 